Lord, may the meditations of my heart and all of our hearts and minds together be pleasing in your sight and work for our good and yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Did anyone detect sunshine? My eyes were briefly blinded by the, the stream through the window. Ten years ago at Christmas time, I took my two daughters, then nine and seven, on a shopping trip. I had given them money to buy gifts for each other and for their older brother. This is an event that turned out to give a phrase to our family that has indelibly marked uh, how we experience life. And the phrase often returns to us. It was uttered by my youngest, at the time Emily, seven, who we call the sage. So here's how the event came down. I, um, we're going into a store, and I think Marta and Emily are right with me. Well, Marta was, but Emily wasn't. And when, by the time I'd figured out that Emily was not with us, all these scenes of devastation, a child being kidnapped, are racing through my mind. And I grab Marta and we run out the door and we're going to the store that I think she's possibly gone into. And she's walking out the door, a big smile on her face, self-content emanating with his store purchase in hand. Immediately, Marta says, if you bought me candy, I will not eat it. <laughs> Without missing a beat, Emily says, you get what you get. In, the, in that moment, all my fear about a kidnapped child and molestations melted into laughter. And I recognized that the phrase, you get what you get, is one of the best answers any younger sister could have given an older sister in the circumstances. Actually, it's a great phrase. You get what you get. It really describes something of our understanding that God gives us what we need, but not necessarily what we want. It's not that Marta needed candy, but her unwillingness to receive the delight of her little sister's choice in that moment describes how we often respond to God. Cheryl Crow, rock star, in a song called Soak Up the Sun, describes turning rejection into acceptance in this line. It's not having what you want. It's wanting what you've got. Theologians are found everywhere, in children and in rock stars. Today we're talking about envy, 
It's part of the series that Scott began last week entitled, We've Got Issues. Scott spoke about keeping secrets and how damaging that is to our relationship with ourselves, with God, and with each other. Well, envy does the same thing. Envy destroys relationships. Intimacy with God, intimacy with ourselves, intimacy with others. It destroys faith and trust. It is trust in God that that we can't understand but necessarily need to know is for our own good. That's what we're asked to live into. In order to participate in what God is doing in our lives and in this world. To bring wholeness emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and yes, physically. We are asked to trust. Now to understand more fully why I believe that envy keeps us from this trust, this relationship with God, let's look at what envy is more fully. The dictionary gives this definition. A feeling of resentful discontent, begrudging admiration, or covetousness with regard to another's advantages, possessions, or attainments. Desire for something possessed by another. Envy is really desire for God gone awry. Let me explain. Like Marta's response to her sister, envy is desire for something other than what's being given to us. Envy says, I know what would make me happy, what would give me peace, what would bring contentment to my life, and it's not what I already have. We all have or have had, or will have moments of envy. But when you live with an envious attitude, and it rules your actions, creating continual discontent, and a defensiveness that manifests itself in qualifying who you are, and what you have, or what you don't have, then you're replacing Desire and trust in God for ambition for what will never satisfy. Why will what you want but don't have not satisfy you? Okay, whether it's talents or possessions or character relationships. Why won't what I want ultimately satisfy me because I've been created you've been created for God's purposes that are especially revealed in your unique person and circumstances you have already been given what you need to live out God's will for your life and substituting what you've already been given with some other ambition blinds you to what God is doing in and through you right in this moment. 
So envy destroys trusting God in ourselves and others. We so easily want more of something, don't we? To make us more acceptable to ourselves, to somebody else. So here's why I chose the text for this sermon that I did. In Romans, as in no other book of the Bible, I believe, is an eloquent, reasonable, and logically dissertation on how we can trust God with our whole lives, surrendering to his love, which simply put, is desire for God. This desire, this desire helps us to live into who we were made to be without living enviously of others. I asked them to read Psalm 63 because it describes this type of desire for God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Your steadfast love is better than life. Do you believe that? Do you experience that kind of passion for God? That kind of deep, satisfying, adoring love? Here's what Romans says. The whole book says this. God created the world for love. He created us for love. He's the initiator of all things. Paul spends the first 11 chapters of Romans explaining why we failed to receive this love. Why we need to be saved. How God provided for our salvation. A salvation that is about trusting God and not ourselves. And how that trust will change us from the inside out. Paul talks about his own struggle with sin. And how God meets us in every need. And Romans tells us that nothing will separate us from God's love. Romans also tells us what God intends to do with the Jewish nation. How they will be saved along with us. Not by what we do, but by what God has done. Romans is all about grace. And then Paul comes to our text this morning. It's a turning point in his deliberation on this grace, this salvation by God's hand. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's a hymn. He's singing. He's done it all. It's amazing. God is our provider, and he is providing all that we need from salvation to eternal life and everything in between. In other words, you can trust God to give you everything you need for your well-being, just what you have right now. And Paul's asking our response to be one of present yourselves to God in worship. That is the only acceptable response to a God who loves you that much. To surrender your lives over to God. We were designed for that. So because of all that God has done, and that we are no longer justified by what we do, say, attain, possess, 
but that it's all grace, all is given. Paul is saying all the rituals, all the old rituals of worship no longer apply. See, his original audience would sacrifice animals as a way to worship God. No, Paul's saying now you don't need to do any of that. What God wants is your very life committed to intimacy with him and each other. Set on loving the things that God loves and loving each other. And therefore, being able to discern, to distinguish by that love what God is doing in you right in the moment with just what you have. It's what Paul says. You don't need anything else. You just need God. Jeremiah puts it this way. I alone know the plans I have for you, says God, plans for your well-being to give you a future and a hope. So, according to Romans 12, discernment is no longer do's and don'ts, but living from the inside out. Dependence on surrender to God, making yourself available to be shaped by his love, living in the moment. Now, we are neither dictating, controlling our relationship with God, nor are we pawns to be moved around on the board of life. But we are actually participants, co-creators with God in recovering a world that has misunderstood who God is. We've turned our backs. And as participants, it's very important that we live into the exact gift and circumstances that we've been given. If we resist how we were made, if we give into enviousness of others, if we are self-judging in our deficiencies and failures, then we miss being a part of what God is doing, a labor of love we are invited to join. So Paul asks us to receive the gifts that God is giving in order to live out God's perfect will in our lives. Now, I bet you all know what my biggest envy is. What I really want but don't have, what would really make me happy, what would give me the comfort that I so long desired. Yep, you're right. I want to sing like Barbara Streisand. People, people who need people. I better keep my day job, huh, Scott? (laughs) Now, that's kind of a shallow envy. Here's my more damaging form of envy. Desiring the poise, the control, the ease of public presence of someone other than me. My way of living in envy at one time was to avoid my feelings of fear, anger, shame, and pain, and not being the person, the pastor, I thought I ought to be, in order to feel comfortable, capable, composed 
in preaching, you know, like in front of 900 people. I thought if only I could have what other pastors have as they preach, teach, and shepherd God's people. But in this envy, I was avoiding the shape of my pastor's soul. A soul that knows trust, compassion, and dogged determination to be God's person. No matter what my circumstances, emotionally or physically. I was running from, after another image, that did not belong to me. No other but the one I was born with. The Terry that God gave to the world for his name's sake. Would satisfy me or God. The problem is not the feelings themselves. The problem is with avoiding the pain or shame or fear, projecting some other image onto myself. The problem of my envy was it undermined God's call to me to live out the image he's given me with all the feelings that come with that image. If I gave in to this envy, I would have missed the strength and the call that is unique to me that no other can fulfill. The feelings in the moment actually lead me to intimacy when they become my prayer and allowing God to meet me where I actually am. If I don't feel what is true, then I will miss God revealing himself sufficient for my every need, caring and loving me where I am not where I am not, which in turn makes it possible to overcome my envy and live into the call that I have been given but would never have chosen. So Paul's theology is correct. Because of God's mercies, love, and provision, you can give yourself completely to God and live into what he has given you already to live his will for your life. Envy becomes obsolete. Envy becomes obsolete. For many of us, we question God when we suffer. Is suffering given? I believe this side of heaven we will suffer because we live in a world that is lost and destroyed. And we suffer because we choose to destroy But we also suffer because God allows it, because it shapes our souls. But we mistake suffering or pain or hardship, whether it's having a disease, dying in a way you never could have imagined, facing the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. We mistake those things for God not giving us what we need. We think, there must have been a mistake. God is not in control. God doesn't care about me. The truth is that nothing will separate us from God's will being done in us. God has a bigger view of how to make that happen than we do. Our part is to surrender to wanting God more 
then we want to be in control. We are enough just as we are with what we have right now to fulfill intimacy, desire for God. Gerald May, a famous psychiatrist, spiritual director and author, no longer living, put it this way in an article I read recently. God will be active within us irrevocably, but we bring immeasurable beauty to that process when we affirm it, choose it, and actively join in it. What we miss when we stay in envy is intimacy with God right where we are in the moment, learning to trust God with our fears, our shame, our failure to love, our need to be wanted. It's as if we declared to God, unless you give me what I want, how I want it, I can't love myself or others, serve you, or participate with what you are doing to heal a broken world. Now we know that's silly, don't we? That in fact, that's what I did at one point, and many of us do when we live in envy. We are in danger of losing the beauty of our souls through envy. So the gifts of God given to us in order to reveal to the world God's enormous love, grace, justice, and sufficiency, no matter what our circumstances, may be the very gifts you have. Our voices, talents, personalities, and yes, our sufferings. These are just what we need and the world needs in order to desire God. The Westminster Confession says it this way about desire for God. It poses the question, what is the chief end of humankind? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you can only do that by living into who you are with what you have, not with what you don't have. And so we remedy the destruction of envy by receiving what we are given by God. All that we are, all that we are not. All we have, all that we don't have. As all being from God's hand, loving us, shaping us for himself, for the world. And so I simply ask you to close with this. Ask God for gratitude today, for trust, for surrender, for the peace that passes all understanding. Ask God for desire for God. And as the sage Emily would say, you get what you get. Or rather, you are given exactly what you need. Receive it, participate in it, and then enjoy the God who gives it. Lord God, would you give us today eyes to see and ears to hear exactly what you are doing and saying in us. For your name's sake, may it be so.
Amen.